Titus chapter 2. And thank you, Josh, for a reading from Ephesians chapter 2, because that, that just fits in excellent with what we're going to talk about today. But uh, I've had a busy week. Uh, I've had a busy weekend. Um, uh, we, uh, it all started uh, Friday, and uh, we, we had our men's retreat, and uh, it got started off in a great manly way. We, we left, and we stopped at one of those gas station barbecues, you know, you know those kinds? And we went in, and I didn't order vegetables, really, you know. There was beans, there was beans there, and there was pickles and onions uh, for it. But I ordered a nice big rib, all right. I got some nice brisket, and I just had to have some good old healthy sausage, you know. And we were just all just pure carnivores there, as us men at this gas station barbecue just uh, gorged ourselves on, uh, on, on, uh, on meat, and so then we made our way to uh, the retreat place there at Frontier Camp, which is near Crockett, Texas. And uh, we got this place that we're, we were staying at. It's called the Creation Station, but it's, it's, a, it's a man center because you go in there and there's like uh, heads of animals all around the room that have been mounted on the walls. And, uh, and there was like uh, just bear skins on the walls. There was even like a stuffed bear there. It was just, it was, that's the place you want to have uh, a man's retreat. And, uh, and so the, yesterday, uh, we, we did all kinds of manly things. All right. Like they had, um, they had a tomahawk throw. Okay. And so we were able to throw tomahawks. That was fun. Once I got it, I kept missing it, but eventually I, I got it. And fortunately there's no one behind it because I would have been dead with me throwing it. But, uh, we got to do that. We got, uh, tomahawk throws. We got, uh, played a little, um, what do you call the game? Ultimate Frisbee. That was really the first time I ever played that. And uh, also did uh, some shooting. They had a rifle gallery. You know, how manly is that? Get to get down. We had a guy who just keep loading the thing up for us, you know, putting more bullets there. and We could shoot all we want. And once I figured out you had to look through two sights in the uh, gun, I, I started hitting the target. And I felt real manly as I shot my 22. Um, what are you laughing at? Soldier boy there, just because you got, you know, bigger guns to play with. Uh, I was pretty happy with my 22. All right. I felt pretty manly at that time. But uh, one of the, the neat things that uh, happened is they had this thing called the junkyard leap. OK. And the junkyard junkyard leap was this uh, thing that went up about 34 feet high. And you had to start from the ground and uh, you had to climb up these. Uh, they had these pieces of wood kind of balanced on cables and they climbed up it. Then they had this tire and then they had this cargo thing. And then you had this box and you had to trust four guys to be below and hold this box steady so you could climb on top of this box. And by the way, they did have a belaying rope on them uh, holding them up there. And then you got up on top of this uh, this box and you're 30 feet feet high and you're supposed to jump out seven feet and grab onto this bar. Okay, It wasn't happening with me. But there are some crazy guys that did it. And see, if you touch the bar, you got to you got to sign this smaller pole. You could put your name on that. OK. And if you grabbed onto the bar, you got to sign your name on a taller pole. What? I don't care about a pole. I wasn't doing it. But all these guys stayed. And so Grant and I just said, no, we need to stay here just to cover you for any funerals that might come out of this. 
So we can do the funeral. So we'll stay on the ground, okay, and cheer you on. But these guys, some of these guys went up and did it. And uh, all of them at least touched the bar. But when you jumped out there, it was hard to really get a grasp on it. And a lot of guys would grab at it, and they just couldn't get, really get a hold of it. And so as a part, they fell to the ground. Of course, they had the blame rope there to catch them. Uh, but some guys, to my amazement, um, jumped out there and were able to hang on to the bar. And we got so mad, we were, we, were, we were cheering for some of them to do pull-ups, which I'm glad I was not there because that wasn't going to happen. The one thing I did, too, uh, is later in the, we went down the lake. It was so nice we get in the lake that there was this rope we could swing out. And uh, I just learned how hard it was to swing out on a rope when you have 225 pounds that you're trying to hold up. And so I did not get as far out on that rope because my grasp was, was pretty weak. But uh, your grasp is, is important. And one of the things I want to talk about with you uh, this morning is your grasp on God's grace. And one of the things I've found that even when we come to faith in God, our grasp of understanding the fullness of God's grace is, is sometimes weak. It's sometimes weak. Our grasp on really what occurred far as his saving grace and how that changed us and how we don't have to go back to the guilt of some of those sins. Or even our grasp of, of how God's grace should change us here and now, or it's kind of weak. And even our grasp on the, on the, the fullness of God, the experience of God's grace for the future of us is, is sometimes not good. And the reality of that is when our, our grasp of God's grace is weak, it affects how we live life here. And our spiritual vitality. And so one of my hopes this morning uh, to do with you is to just give you some things and some truths that I find here in, in, in Titus chapter 2, 11 through 12, that I believe that can give you a greater grasp on God's transforming grace. And I'm just going to read this and I want us all to follow along and just really meditate on this. This, this passage comes in, in a book that is written to the church in Crete. Chapter, it's, it's, the whole book is about organizing for godliness. It's really, that's how I kind of sum up the book of Titus. In chapter one, what you'll find is that he's ordering, he's ordering for godliness amongst leaders. Then in chapter two, which we're in the day, he's organizing for godliness amongst the members and their interaction between each other. And in, in Titus chapter 3, you'll see that he's organizing for godliness as you engage a lost world. But it's here in chapter 2 that we are, and as he just talks about the interaction amongst the, the believers in the church, and particularly the impact that older believers should have on younger believers, he comes and he writes this in verse 11. He says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people 
for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So I'm going to obey that last command there in verse 15. And I'm going to remind you of these truths. And I'm going to exhort you uh, in these truths about God's grace. As we look at this passage, I believe there are four points that it will help us get a greater grasp on the transforming power of God's grace. The first one is this. We get a greater grasp by understanding the nature of God's grasp and receive it by faith. It says, for the grace of God. That is, he said, what he's doing, he's going back, he's explaining, this is a, he's explained all that has come before, what he's urging him to. To the godliness that he was calling him to, and he's saying, for the grace of God has appeared. This is what makes it possible. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Your first question you might ask is, well, where has the grace of God been? Matt, are you saying that the God of, of the New Testament or the Old Testament was not a God of grace? Matt, I'm not saying that at all. That's not what the text is saying. But he says the grace of God has appeared. First of all, what is grace? Grace comes from a Greek word, charis. It literally means uh, undeserved, unmerited favor. It's in essence, the grace of God is getting God's absolute best when we deserve his absolute worst. Grace uh, cannot be earned. It's not bestowed on us because of any merit of our own. It's, it's free. I love one of the stories that I read in our daily bread. A new convert to Christ had given her their testimony during a church service. And they did so with a a great smile on their face and a joy in their hearts. And as this person related how they had been delivered from a life of sin, he gave glory, uh, gave the Lord all the glory, saying nothing of any of his own merits or what he had done to deserve the blessings of redemption. The person in charge who happened to be very legalistic, didn't fully appreciate the reality of salvation by grace through faith alone apart from human works. So he responded to this young man's comments by saying, you seem to indicate that God did everything when he saved you. Didn't you do your part before God did his? And this new Christian jumped to his feet and he said, oh, yes, I did my part. For more than 30 years, I ran away from God as fast as my sins could carry me. That was my part. But God took out after me and ran me down. That was his part. It's God's grace. There's nothing we can do to merit the grace of God. We simply respond in faith and receive his gift. That's all. It's for by grace that you are saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But look at the text again. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. God has always been a God of grace. And matter of fact, if you go back, we often think that God is not that much of a a graceful God in the Old Testament. If you go back and you read the stories, you will see the grace of God everywhere. And his patience and his long suffering and how he blessed his people. 
It's there. But when he speaks of the grace of God has appeared, he's, he's using the word for appeared that where we get ours, the word epiphany. It is something becomes visible. It's to make an, an appearance. What he's speaking about is Jesus Christ. That is, when Christ came, he took the idea of God's grace from just being a simple divine attribute that we often think of, that unmerited favor, and he put flesh on it for us. That is, Jesus Christ was grace incarnated. He appeared and he made grace visible for us. Turn with me to John chapter 1. Verses 14 through 17. Let me read this to you. In John chapter 1, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Get this. Full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has explained his grace to us. He has put flesh on grace for us when he appeared. When Jesus Christ came and took on the flesh of man, being the God man, he lived a perfect life. He went to that cross for us. He died in our place and rose again. That was grace in action for us. That's when the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Some of us might think, well, does this mean that all men are saved? No. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that the provision for grace is available for all men. That the only means of salvation that there is, is provided through Jesus Christ. The story is told in 1829 of George Wilson who robbed the U.S. mail. He killed a man and was later sentenced to die. However, some caring friends chose to intervene on his behalf, and they appealed to the president, Andrew Jackson himself, who was eventually persuaded to grant George Wilson a pardon. However, when news of this pardon got back to Wilson, he refused to accept it. People were stunned. The marshal in charge of Wilson did not know what to do. President Jackson did not know what to do. So it went all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled that the pardon was only a piece of paper with some words written on it. And while the written pardon makes full provision to free Wilson, it is only effective if the pardon is received. So the pardon was rejected by Wilson, who had salvation made available to him, but he didn't receive it. As I speak to you this morning about the grace of God, God has provided grace. He's provided forgiveness for sins for you and I. 
But if you don't repent, if, don't, if you don't turn away from whatever else you're trusting in and turn and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in Christ alone, you can't appropriate the grace of God. You must turn and respond in faith. Or else you'll never get a grasp on God's grace. The second thing I see in here about helping us get a grasp on God's grace is this. That we do that by walking in the instruction of God's grace. Look at verse 12 says. Instructing us, that is, salvation is available to all men, but it only instructs us who, who received it by faith to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. That is, the very same God who provides, who seeks to free us from the penalty of sin by His grace, He also wants to give us grace, He wants His grace to instruct us to live differently here and now. It instructs us in in, in two ways. First, it instructs us to say, no. This, this word deny is, is something that, indicated by the, the, the verb tense, it's something that's ongoing. There's this ongoing sense of, of denying things that are ungodly and, and worldly desires. Specifically when he says no to ungodliness, it is saying no to anything that lacks reverence and true devotion to God. Worldly desires refer to those things that... Uh, it refers to those those desires of sinful lusts and cravings that that characterize the the natural man or the fleshly man. And reality is the the grace of God teaches us to say no to that. I mean, why wouldn't we want to? If if God has saved us from these sins. That at one time had destined us to wrath and judgment. But by his grace, he's provided a forgiveness and a pardon for that. And, and given us a new relationship with Christ. Why would we want to go back to that? So it's an essence of what God is saying. Hey, my grace has forgiven you of this. It has freed you from being enslaved to these things. Don't go back to those. Instead, deny ungodliness, deny worldly desires. But it says this instead, for, for, for it's no, it says, I want you to say yes to this. To live sensibly, which means to be self-controlled. It relates to our continual need for inward change. He says, I want you to say no to this, but yes to this, to live sensibly, to, to live righteously. That is to have right relationships with others, whether it's fairness or integrity, or honesty or truthfulness in our action, interactions with each other. And I want you to live godly, which I think pertains to our, our relationship with God. And that one's life is to be centered, is to have God at the center of its life. So God's grace frees us from that sinful self-interest that we once had and frees us up now to say yes to godliness and righteousness and the, and the freezes up to put God at the center of our life. He says, I, I want you to say yes to that. And I want you to do it now. He says, for this present age, 
This is what my grace instructs you to do. Now, here's the question we have. How does grace really help me to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness? Because, Matt, I still struggle. You've got to think about what else God granted you freely in his grace. And part of God's saving grace is that he also imparted himself to you and I. That now Christ lives in us through the presence of his Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought of grace that way? That God not only humbled himself, came down and took on flesh freely of his own will and did that in his choice. But he also imparts his Holy Spirit to enable us to live the Christian life here and now. He instructs us to say no to ungodliness and yes to live sensibly and righteously. He does this by the imparting and the dwelling presence. So if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, which you do if you're a true believer, you're able to live a godly life. But how come, here's the question, but how come I still don't live this godly life? Well, I think of it as this way. I've heard this illustration once. It's kind of like a... Let's say you have a car battery and the battery is full of power and ready to go. And you get in your car and you sit down, and you put on your seatbelt and and say, go car. Nothing happens. And you say, car, let's go drive. But nothing happens. So you get the battery and you go back to Walmart and you say, hey, this battery is a bad battery. OK. And they get the things out and they check and they say, no, this is a perfectly good battery. You have all kinds of power in this battery, but it's not working. Well, tell me what you're doing. Well, I get in the car and I say, go. And then they say, well, there's one important thing that you got to do. You got to turn the ignition to activate the power to move your car. And if you want to know what the ignition is in walking with the Holy Spirit, it's this. It starts with faith. And faith that leads to obedience. It starts with the ignition to the power of living out the Holy Spirit in our life. It's it's trusting God. It's having dependence upon the Holy Spirit to enable you to live the Christian life. And then in the midst of that trust and that dependence, it's acting on obedience. And as we do that, we begin to walk with the Holy Spirit. As we begin to walk with the Holy Spirit, he begins to enable us and empower us to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly. That's a gift that God has given us, his presence in us to enable us to live the Christian life. There's a third thing, though, I think I see in here. It's in verse 13. One of the reasons that we miss a greater grasp on on God's grace in our lives is that we become so focused on this world and this world alone. We become centered on our own desires. And we, we, we forget that we're just here for a time. So Paul writes in here, he says in verse 13, he says, look for the blessed hope. In appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. 
So the third thing is we need to eagerly be looking forward to the future of God's grace. Do you know there's a future to it? Do you know it's not just pardon from sin alone? It's not just the fact that he gives his, his presence freely in our lives through the Holy Spirit, but that you and I are to look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. I'll, I'll be frankly, I have to be honest with you. There's been many a time I have not looked forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. You know, I, I had those thoughts when I was younger at times. You know, God, I know you're coming back again someday, but I'd like to get married first. Can I, can I just try that out first? So, so don't come yet, okay? And then I'd say, like, you know, God, I'd like to have a few children first. But God wants us to eagerly look forward this idea of here, the blessed hope, refers to uh, the, the, this, it's our hope that when Christ will come back again. And then this idea of appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And that is when he comes in his full manifestation and when he comes and he sets all things right. When when sin is eradicated, do you look forward to that day? Because that's part of his grace. That's what awaits us. A day when we'll no longer have to struggle with the things that we struggle with. And we're called, if we want to grasp God's grace more firmly, we're called to to begin to, the focus of our life is, yes, we, we live here and we serve Him, but at the same time, we always have this eye that's looking. It's saying, you know what, he, He's coming back. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is coming back. And I believe someday that when we get there, we will be so overwhelmed with the depth of God's grace that has been bestowed upon us. I mean, we, we, we realize that we say, yeah, we're, we're forgiven of sin. But I believe when we get to heaven and we realize even more fully all that we have inherited in Christ Jesus. And in Ephesians, it talks about us already being seated with him in heaven. That we have no comprehension of what we really heaven will be like. I mean, we, we get glimpses of it. But I think we'll get there and first thing we'll do is we'll do we'll, we'll, do, we'll have this thought. I'm totally unworthy of this. I think when we see God in his full manifested presence, we're going to be so floored by his utter distinct holiness And even if we've never done, quote, the big sins in our life, we're going to realize how those small sins were so heinous to him. But because he loved us and pulled out his grace, poured out his grace on us, we'll be there. And I believe there's riches, uh, and I'm talking material, but richness of eternity with him that we will for eternity try to grasp. The fullness of that grace that he's freely bestowed upon us. And so in those times when we get so grounded down on what's going on here on earth and go so tied to our temporal things, always have that eye that's looking forward to his return and the full manifestation of his glory that he will pour out on us. In the future of the experience of his grace that we'll have not just for a few years, 
but we'll have for eternity. Last, there's one other thing I believe that helps you get a grasp on the grace of God. It's one of the things that happens during this week as we come up to celebrate Good Friday and as we celebrate Easter. It's this, remembering the cost and responding to the purposes of God. Verse 14 says this, who gave himself for us. Stop there for a moment. He gave himself for us. That is, that should have been us on that cross. That should have been you and I that should have paid that, 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 that debt. For the wages of sin is death. The death of a, eternal separation from God, which is really the real pain of death. But we realize that Christ put himself up there in our place and he experienced something he had never experienced in all eternity, that there was somehow some turning away where he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And somehow within the Trinity, within the Godhead, the Father and the Son were separated. And we can't imagine the agony of that. But he took his place for our place for and he experienced that for us so that we wouldn't have to have the agony of being without the relationship with God for eternity. And that's the real crime of death, the real pain of death. Yes, we will all die physically. But because of God's grace, there will not be a moment that we're not with God. One of the most one of the joys I had in most of the most despairing times was the death of my father. When I saw him die and breathe that last death, that last breath, at the same time, I had the hope of God's word as as the scriptures describe it. It's just as if going to sleep. And though he breathed his last breath here on earth, he was with Christ in heaven for absent with from the body. Is present with the Lord. And that was made possible because of God's grace for us. But look at this. Who gave himself, and he did this for two reasons, two purposes. First of all, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. The word redeem is, is a word that was used of purchasing people off the slave block of sin. So that is when Christ went and he made that payment for us, he paid the price and he freed us from the slave block of that sin. That is, we, we, we're, we're no longer slaves to sin. We no longer owe anything for it. We've been, the payment's been made, we've been redeemed. And in experiencing and getting a more fuller grasp on the grace of God, you need to have that imagery. You need to keep that imagery and realize that you've been redeemed and you've been taken off that slave block. Because here's something I have done in my life and sometimes I continue to do. Because of things that I've done in my life since becoming a Christian. What I like to do is, and even though I've come and I've confessed and I've repented of it, Satan likes to make use of that. And he comes and he he presses in on me and how could you do that? You're guilty. And what I want to do is that because that guilt starts falling on me, I want to start walking towards back to that slave block of sin. 
And I want to step back up on it. Don't do it. I know right now there's many of you that are struggling with guilt of sin in your life. There's nothing you can do to pay for it. The payment is made. And part of his grace is he, he has already taken you off that slave lock and he never wants you to return to it. You're free from it. That's part of his redeeming price that he made. But look at this. He also says this. Not only to redeem us from the every lawless deed, but also to purify for himself a people of his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. That is, we don't serve to be saved, but God has saved us to serve. And the way that I look at it, this is I'm overwhelmed by the reality that because of God's grace, not only am I forgiven of my sins, but God has also given me a purpose in life that has eternal impact. That is, God has called each and every one of us to be ministers. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has ordained beforehand. That is, when we come to Christ, he works in us because he has good deeds. He has a plan for us, a purpose for us to serve him in his eternal plan. And I don't know about you. That's a pretty good deal. That I get to be this lost sinner deserving hell, but he saves me and he says, you know what? Because of my grace, I also want to bring you in on my plan of being used to bring other people into my kingdom. That's a pretty good gift, isn't it? Do you think of it that way? That God has freely given us that opportunity? And so he wants to purify us for, to be a people of his own possession. So through his Holy Spirit, he works on us and he grows us. He, he brings us to conviction of areas in our life. And purifies us and sets us apart to serve him and to be zealous for good deeds. It's a gift to be able to serve him. And we need to look at it that way. There was a young girl given first-class ticket to Europe. It was no cost to her. It was, it was absolutely free. But on the way, one of the stewards got sick and was able to, to serve the other passengers. So the young girl went up there, went up there and, and said, uh, I, I will serve. The stewardess said, no, 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 you, you can't do that. You're, you're a passenger. She said, I, I, I couldn't have you do that. The young girl responded, but you don't understand. I feel so compelled to do so. I have been given this wonderful seat for absolutely free at no cost to me. It would be my privilege to share this gift with you by helping you. And that's the outlook we should have on the grace of God. We've been given something so freely Absolutely free, unmerited. And we have the privilege to be able to serve him in his eternal plan and share the grace of God with others.
one of the highlights of uh, the men's retreat for me was really one of the causes why I didn't get home until uh, after 1 a.m. this morning. And now uh, we had this time where we, uh, after we had done with one of our sessions, we had a time where we, uh, there was this porch, and they had all these rocking chairs out there, and we brought other seats out, and uh, we had a, a little fire going. It was, it was really cool. Everybody just kind of sitting around. And we opened it up for a time for people to share, and you know, and those kind of things, I don't really expect guys to, to share a lot. And I actually had a couple plants. You know, you have to have those plants in there to get people going. But we got going. Matter of fact, even before my, my plants even started sharing, people started getting up and sharing. And I heard stories of God's grace. I, stirred, I heard stories of how people were lost and dead in their sin, and, and God came along and grabbed hold of their life and by his grace, they even responded in faith. I heard stories of a man who was an atheist until he was like 30 some years old, where God grabbed a hold of his life and brought him to faith in Christ Jesus. I heard stories of other guys who had struggled, a guy who struggled with pornography for years and years, and he was a believer. But God, in his grace, grabbed a hold of him. And he allowed God's grace to instruct him to deny ungodliness, to repent of this. And he told us of how God was changing and transforming his life. Her stories how all guys, because of God's grace in their life, were being moved to want to go and to serve God zealously. It was powerful. And what I experienced were some men, and myself included, who were getting a greater grasp. On the grace of God. My prayer for you is that you will come to a realization that the grace of God has an impact on our past. Yes. But the grace of God also guides us and enables us here in the present. And the grace of God also gives us a sure hope for what's ahead. We will never stop experiencing and growing in the depth and the grasp of grace of God. Amen. Dear God, we come and we give you thanks. We praise you, Lord. We praise you for this immense gift that I truly don't believe, Lord, will ever get a full grasp of it until the day that you return. And even then, I think we'll spend all eternity understanding your grace. So, Lord, my prayer is this, this, this morning that there are those that there are some here today that have never come to a place in their life when they realized, uh, Lord, that they're sinners and that they are separated from you, God. They've never come to a point where they realize that they can't save themselves and that all they can do is repent, that is, turn away from their sin or turn away from this thought that they can save themselves and put their faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's through faith that we receive your grace. I pray, Lord, that you will do that work this morning in their life. I pray, Lord, you will draw them and you will give them the faith to put trust in Christ and Christ alone. I pray, Lord, for... Those of us who are here that are struggling with guilt, 
I pray, Lord, that you will help them to walk anew in your grace. And Lord, I pray also, Lord, as it is so easily for us to just focus on the here and now, but that in the here and now, that we won't focus just on the temporal things, but we'll focus on being used of you by your grace in this world. But at the same time, we'll keep an eye looking, eagerly looking for your return and your future grace, Lord. Lord, we just praise you and we thank you, Lord. And all God's people said,